Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for uh, silly questions and community and being able to, to laugh with each other and study God's word together. I thank you for these men and women uh, here on this Zoom, and also those listening on the podcast. We just thank you for uh, journeying together as we study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are in we are in Hebrews. Hebrews, I did it again, the letter H, H, H. We are in Hosea chapter 11. Hosea 11 is a nicer chapter again. We've had some hard ones where God is just bringing it and bringing it and bringing it. This one will feel like a little bit of fresh air. And we will get to see, we'll kind of get to see the heart of God here. We'll, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be seeing something just a little bit different than before. Not really different because it, it hasn't, God hasn't changed this whole time. But yeah, there's something about tonight that's just going to come across a little differently and refreshingly so. So we are in, again, Hosea 11. And as, and as you see at the top of the, the page there, uh, we will finish with verse 11. I know Hosea 11 has a 12th verse. That will be in the next session. Um, but you see here, God's people are unfaithful, chapters 1 to 3. God's people do not know him, 4 to 6. And our sessions tonight will end this next section. God's people are not devoted to him. So they're devoted to everything else but God. And then the final session section is God's people are deceitful. And so we have here God's love, God's punishment, God's compassion, and God's promise. And Hosea 11 is really good regards to God's love. We're going to learn a lot about love tonight and how God loves. This chapter is not meant to be taken as an exhaustive um, idea about what love is, just like you wouldn't take 1 Corinthians 13 as that's all you get to learn about love. That there's The Bible's full of love. And that's the, the, the main commandment, love, love the Lord your God. And the second one is love your neighbor. And so love, love is what uh, unites the, the main message of the Bible. Okay, God's love, one, or chapter 11, one to four. Here we go. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them accords of kindness with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. That's nice. God's love begins with deliverance. Out of Egypt, he called, his, he called his son. Gee, I wonder where that came from. The book of Exodus. He literally called his children out of Egypt. And especially to the readers of, of Hosea's text here, that would be the only thing they could come up with with regards to Egypt. Now, Egypt was a player in geopolitics at the time, and there was alliances made with Egypt. But God was not calling his children out of Egypt in Hosea's day. This is a reference back to the Exodus. 
Yeah, so we have deliverance here. God's love delivers, and God's love perseveres. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. That had to hurt. Like, I don't know if we can hurt God. That's kind of odd to think of. But I'm just trying to think of it from a parental standpoint. Or you don't even have to be a parent. Just think about it from a relationship standpoint. The more he called, the more they ran away. It's as if they were intentionally not listening to God. And instead running after any other option. Now, I'm not going to argue that we're hurting God. But God's writing this so that we would respond to it. In fact, that's the blue question coming up here. How do you personally respond to these verses? Because they're written in such a way that we want to respond from a human standpoint. We want to ponder what our sinful choices have done to God, even though maybe they're not doing anything to God. But we're we're left to think in those categories, to take in the reality of our sin and to take in the reality of their sin. To get inside God's brain just a little bit, or get 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 at God's heart just a little bit here, of what's going on. Yeah, Mictex. If anything, God reminding Israel of the fact that He pulled them out of Egypt, and here now, Israel is making alliances with them. Wow, that's pretty messed up. It is. Yeah, feeling betrayed. I can see that they rejected him in favor of other people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, our sin, it just, we're left to ponder about the, the enormity of our own sin, the seriousness of our sin. If the book of Hosea does nothing else, it challenges you to be Gomer, to consider yourself, in what ways are you like Gomer? So here, the relationship image has changed. Now it's not the husband, buy back your wife. It's the father calling a son. So Israel is not the wayward wife. Israel is the prodigal son who refuses to leave the pig slop and go back to dad. Instead, dad is actually calling and he won't come. Ouch. God shows his love with deliverance. God shows perseverance. The more they were called, it's like God just keeps calling and keeps calling. Presence. Verse 3, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. They did not not even know that I healed them. I don't know what that last part means. Some commentators have said that God has just been doing little blessings to them and not taking credit for it. Obviously, God takes credit for Egypt and all the law that I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Everyone knows that God brought them out of Egypt. But God's letting them know, hey, I'm doing other things. I don't even take credit for it. You have no idea the things I'm doing for you. I'm healing you. I'm caring for you. See, God has a presence in their life. He's leading them. He's helping them to walk. He's establishing them. And he's doing things behind the scenes. They don't even have any idea what. And the care and provision. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and feed them and fed them. God shows care, and God provides for all their needs. So how does God love? God's number one way he loves us is by delivering us. It's true with Egypt and Israel. 
and the exodus and slavery. And it's true for us, the bondage of our own sin. God delivers. God perseveres. I know that's my story. I don't know why God never gave up on me, but he didn't. God's presence, that very Emmanuel, God with us, his constant presence in our life, his care, the way he provides for us. You need to take a moment here. How do you respond? How God is talking about his son, Israel. How had they treated God? Does that speak to you? How has God continued to pursue them? How does that encourage you? Because Isaiah 53 says it plainly. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each to our own way. Yeah, they are worshiping other gods when God is the only one who's done anything for them. Yeah. Mick text, and I think God doesn't give up on us because he sovereignly chose us before the creation of the world. Yeah, and we're going to get that in the, in the third section tonight, definitely. But yeah, good call. Reading these first four verses, it, is, it begs a response by the reader. We're either saying, God, you are just really naive and you just really let them pull the wool over your face. And boy, they sure got one over on you, God. Boy, you know, you're, you're a sucker, I guess. You, you love them. You shouldn't have loved them anymore, God. But we don't really want to say that to God. Why don't we want to say that to God? Because we're Israel in these first four verses. Our own stories are our, our, illustrate our own selfishness. They illustrate our own issues. And just like we are Gomer in the first few chapters of Hosea, we are wayward Israel here. And we're left to ponder how God still considers us. So God, that's God's love. Now God's punishment. No, I, 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 made, I made that like that for the sake of keeping a, a, a list going there. There it is. We have a doorbell. But God is not punished. But the punishment coming from God. Here we go. Five to seven. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. Well, that has to be a breath of fresh air. We're not going back to Egypt. Great. But Assyria shall be their king. Oh, no. Because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Ouch. Ouch. Why are they going to be punished? Now, wait a minute, Joel. You just got done talking about God's love and how God keeps calling them and calling them and calling them. Yeah, but what this chapter is going to get us to understand is that God's love and God's justice meet. And at some point, enough was enough. And there was a reality. Because they refused to repent. They kept to their own counsels. Whatever they thought, in the book of Judges, you would call that whatever is right in their own eyes. It's like if you had a counselor, and that counselor was all about themselves, 
and they didn't really point you back to God or help you get back on the right path again, that would be a bad counselor. If you kept taking in advice or counsel from people and you have an issue or a problem, you're getting advice and all that advice steers you away from God, that is not good Christian advice, whether it's coming from a pastor or from a friend or from a neighbor, whoever it is. And when you continue to keep to your own counsels, rejecting the word of the Lord, danger, Will Robinson, danger. Yeah, out of the frying pan into the fire, into the fire. Yeah, great point, Meg. Egypt and Assyria. You know, Egypt at least let them live. The Assyrians, well, like I said, crispy critters. Um, Hebrews twelve six and Proverbs three twelve. God disciplines and punishes those He loves. Yes, and it appears here that that punishment is going to be quite severe. We hope against all hope. That this chapter ends with further hope. Because right now there is no hope. Right now we're transitioning from I love you, you're my son, and I care for you, and I've always been there for you, to but you're going to die. And my people are bent on turning away from me. They're hell-bent. My dad used to say that. Boy, you're just hell-bent on doing this. Well, that had to come from somewhere. These people are hell-bent. They were bent. No matter what, they were going to serve themselves. They were going to reject God. They were going to go after the Baals. They were going to do their own thing. That's stubbornness. That's our blue question here. These stubborn, stiff-necked, unrepentant, and expectations. You see, if you're stubborn, I kind of, in my my facebook devotion this morning i was pondering this for some a brief moment if you're stubborn if you're stiff-necked and you're unrepentant you have no business expecting forgiveness from god well first john 1 9 joel okay first john 1 9 starts with the word if if we confess our sins he is faithful and just the expectation is you're doing what you should be doing, and God's faithfulness then comes into play. We don't get any idea of repentance here. We don't get any idea of any of that. They're just stiff-necked. They're doing their own thing. They're the wayward son that insists upon staying wayward. And see, this chapter hurts because there was a season of my life where that was me. I played games with God's grace, and I did whatever I, I felt like doing. And I still expected God to forgive me. And I did not repent of my sins. I confessed my sins, but I kept in my sins. That's the epitome of hypocrisy. I'm in this text tonight, or that younger me was in this text tonight. The stubborn, stiff-necked, unrepentant person cannot have expectations of God. They go beyond judgment. Now, the irony is the stubborn, stiff-necked, unrepentant person is like the, uh, the leaders of the Pharisees in the Gospels. They're not going to care. You know, Jesus says, you know, all sins will be forgiven, but that one. And they're probably like, whatever. They didn't, didn't give, give one rip. But if you're stubborn in your sin, if you're stiff-necked and unwilling to repent, you don't get any expectations of God. 
So I don't see them having any expectations here. So when they call out and God's not going to lift them up, duh. He's your God now. Only when you're at death's door, he's your God. And all this other time, you've been poking him in the eye like Mo Curley and Larry. And you expect God to come through for you. Now, when we learn about grace never making sense, if they get any kind of grace after this, it makes no sense at all. But that's our story, too. If we are the stubborn ones, if we are the stiff-necked ones, stiff-necked ones, if we refuse to repent. And we know that we keep turning this direction and we refuse to turn back to God. Yeah, make text. And the thing, this is one of the easier chapters. All these chapters kick our butt because we're in the chapter. Remember, Ephesians 2, you are dead in your sins. Your natural state is to choose you. You will never not choose you except by the will of God. Unless God's doing something in you, you're going to stay a corpse in the Ephesians 2 sense. You never will be anything else. And it's very sobering. The fact that you're here tonight in this season of your life is because of the sovereign work of God. And that's, that's reassuring. Because honestly, if you think about it, if you could lose your salvation, your salvation becomes a salvation of works. You work yourself in, you work yourself out. And we don't believe that. God's love, God's punishment, God's compassion. Ah, we get verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. How about that as a verse? Wow. My compassion grows warm and tender. What is this Adma and Zeboim? Zeboim. Boy, just random city names. Here it is. This is uh, Deuteronomy 29. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur. Ooh, yummy. Nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim. Now, we all know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are like the, the, the common person who's never picked up a Bible. You say, what's Sodom and Gomorrah? They go, I have an idea what Sodom and Gomorrah is. Because it's just common parlance now. Destruction. God, God, had at it. God destroyed them or something like that. Anybody knows who Sodom and Gomorrah is. But how about the two lesser known cities that got destroyed? Adma and Zeboim. These are just random little nebulous cities that no one ever thinks about. Everyone just thinks about Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't think about Adma and Zeboim. But we have them here. Just a little footnote in history. God's saying, I don't want my people to be that little Adma Zeboim footnote. Well, the verses continue. Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? So, 
How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? You hear what he's saying there? Hand you over to who? To whom? Assyria. How can I just hand you over with hooks in your nose as you're being pulled out? How can I do that? I mean, just appreciate the anthropomorphism here. I love how God wrote this. God is not a dude. God doesn't have these human-style emotions like we have human-style emotions. But God wrote them so that we would greatly appreciate exactly what he's communicating. God's communication here to human beings is genius. He anthropomorphizes himself for our sake. It's debasing himself to describe himself in those terms. But he's doing it for us. So appreciate what God has done here. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. God doesn't have a heart. He did in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son. But besides that, God doesn't have a heart. This is poetry. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. What? First of all, appreciate the anthropomorphism there. We like that because we get to see God in a bit at our level, where we can understand that we would have experienced some of those emotions if we were in his place. So then we who are not God, we who are the ones in Israel's place, we can understand and appreciate that. Yeah, Mick texted, all these Old Testament books we've gone through, and this one in Judges really ranks up there, is what 1 Corinthians 10.6 tells us. Now these things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things that they also craved. Amen. You see, God's sovereign choice. It looks like the way history is going to unfold is that God is communicating to us with the anthropomorphism there. He doesn't really want to destroy his people, but his justice demands it. But if I read this at face value, this generation is going to be destroyed. They're going into exile. They're going into crispy critter land. They're done. Their king's going to be Assyria, and Assyria is going to do whatever he darn well pleases. But is there hope for a future? This generation is done. God's sovereign choice. If God, if, if God wants to sit there and say, you're done, but God still wants to have compassion, God can do that too. And we are all thankful that God can make that choice. Because that means you and I are still here and not six feet under the ground. For the wages of sin is death. None of us have had to pay the price for our sins. I don't know why God showed us grace. I don't know why God chose us before the creation of the world. I don't know why we are the elect. And we look at this and say, well, how in the world could God ever still keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, he would, have to, he would have to preserve some kind of a remnant now, wouldn't he? Some remnant would have to survive to be an Ephraim or, Jude or, or, or Israel the future. Hope 
in the midst of judgment. That's what we're longing for. We're longing for that right now. We've got God saying, I love you. My compassion is stirred within me. But I must destroy you. But how can I do so? You see, God's struggle there, it warms our hearts. It gets us to, it, it doesn't make God weaker. God's doing it for our sake. But it is extra convicting upon us. Our choices don't affect God in the way that we think they affect God. Because he's the sovereign one. But still. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. I will not again destroy. Maybe we get a flavor of the, uh, the Noah's Ark rainbow. I'm not going to do that again. But this generation, I don't know. What we do know is that God does destroy them. God does hand them over to the Assyrians. And they do become crispy critters. Yeah, good point there, Mick. Our, our choices matter to God, but they don't affect him. That's a great point. Our choices are important, but they're not sovereignly important. As if God's waiting on our choice to know what to do. Let me scroll down here. So God, God's love, God's punishment, God's compassion. And, you know, as a dad, I have these, um, you know, I'll call after my kids. And sometimes they want to listen to me right away. Other times I have to turn into the Incredible Hulk before they answer me. Or we have to do the, 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 the parental countdown. You know, like the kids aren't listening, but we'll start shouting out five four and all of a sudden by three they're like oh crap and they start running you can hear their footsteps clunk 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 because they know at the end of that zero something's going to happen and yeah and something is like a daddy turns off the wi-fi or something like that they, they got to pay attention but yeah you call and you call and they don't want to come that's just my silly kids coming to dinner or something like that this is god calling them to be in a relationship back with him to repent of their evil ways and to come at his voice. To come when he calls. I have an elderly dog now. She can't hear. Gone are the days where I, I let her out to go potty. I pick her up, lay her in the grass myself and just carry her down the stairs because she can't do the stairs anymore. I lay her in the grass gently because if I don't do it gently, she'll somehow stumble even if it's, she's going two inches. And I wait. I just sit there and wait for that blessed moment where she squats and she has her pee because it's in the grass and not in my kitchen. I wait, see what she's going to do. I could call all I want. She'll never hear me. I go back out there, pick her up, hold her to my chest, kind of rub her head a little bit so she can have her nose right here under my wrist so she can smell me. Then Lee snow. Okay. This is this. I, I'm just, being escorted off the ground. Ah, oh, it's daddy. Okay. All right, fine. And then I bring her inside, set her down, 
And she usually goes back to sleep or something. And I wait for a little click clack of her feet again. And she begins to walk around and we do it all over again. But gone are the days when she can hear me. Where I could call her. I just have to go get her. God's calling. And Israel refuses to listen. At some point, enough was enough. We don't like that. Hope in the midst of judgment. God's promise, 10 to 11. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. What a great image. Wow. God's going to one day reveal his power. The lion, the people are going to fear. They're going to follow him. They're going to respond in a positive sense. That means the rebellion is going to be over. They're going to accept God and they're going to accept his ways. They're going to be trembling. That means that they now fear God and they want to submit to God. They're going to return from bondage and to their own land. This assumes that God has defeated their enemies and God has made that restoration possible. God's going to gift that land to them. That, that land, he's going to put them back in their home. That means that God's going to keep his word. You see, the father's going to call again. And this time, the kids are not going to ignore it. He's going to roar. And the kids are going to say, yes, sir, we're here, present and accounted for. They're shaking a bit as I do so. But you do shake a bit when the lion roars. The children shall come. See, back at the top here, God's calling after his son, and his son's saying, yeah, whatever. In fact, worse than that, the son is not only saying no, the son is going to option B and refusing to leave option B, B for Baal, refusing to go back to God. The father will call again. The children shall come. See, that's, that's a great promise for the future. There's hope there, because even though this generation's crispy critters, there's hope. One day for Israel. There's hope. One day for these wayward sons, who at a certain point are not going to be wayward anymore. And you see, it's with that that we transition to the book of Matthew. Chapter 2, let me scroll down the screen here so you can see. Hosea and Jesus, Matthew chapter 2, when they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That's great. But Joel, is Hosea 11 a future prophecy? 
let's take Hosea 11 in its context. What is God saying? Is God talking about the future? Is God talking about some future thing yet to be fulfilled? No, God is looking back at Egypt and saying, I already fulfilled it out of Egypt. I called you my son. So what in the world is Matthew doing? He's not saying so much about this prophecy. He's saying something else. You see, God has two sons. One is Israel, who he called out of Egypt. And the second is the perfect Israel, Jesus. Israel, if he wasn't doing what was doing in the first four verses of this chapter. Jesus, the son that was never wavered, the son that always came when the father called, the son who always paid attention, the son who always obeyed out of Egypt. So there's hope there. There's hope for Israel. But I argue through Christ. I do not argue that the church has replaced Israel. There is a branch of theology that does argue that. That is not how I think. But I think John 14, 6 trumps Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God made the promise to Abraham. But John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. All Jews can come to God, but they must do so through their Messiah. Perfect Israel called out of Egypt. There's hope there for Israel. There's hope there for Israel. Though they are wayward because of the one who was not wayward, the true son, the one that would take their place. I think in that regard, Matthew is exactly right. And he does perfectly fulfill the heart of the message. Of Hosea 11.1. That God, when he calls, Egypt, calls Jesus his son out of Egypt, that fulfills what Israel was meant to be. But they instead chose their own way. Hmm. Maybe I'm wrong there. I don't know. I don't have to be right. But that's how I wrestled with it this afternoon. And how in the world does Matthew 2, despite the fact that it was quoted from Hosea 11, does it fit? Something to think about. Hosea 11 and God's love, we learn that God chooses a covenant and to call people. Verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. I don't know why God did so, but God chooses what God chooses. God is a sovereign one. I don't know why God has chosen one thing and not chosen another. We don't know why God chooses and calls who he does, but he does. God in his love chooses and God sovereignly calls. Verses three and four. Remember that he taught Ephraim to walk took them by their arms. He healed them without them even knowing. He led them with cords of kindness, bands of love, eases the yoke on their jaws. See, God in his love teaches 
and God leads. Same verses, he heals and he delivers. But God's based on his, his love is based on his choice and not our choice. So when eight and nine, when he decides, he, he, if he doesn't want to execute his burning anger the way he, that he thought he was going to or whatever, I don't know how God, I don't know how that works out in God's mind because he's anthropomorphizing himself. So we, we can't play with that too much. It kind of looks like God's changing his mind, but God doesn't change his mind. God sovereignly chooses and it unfolds. He proclaims and history proceeds. You see, God chooses a covenant to, to covenant with some and to call some. God in his love teaches and he leads. God in his love heals and he delivers. God's love is based upon his choice, not ours. So he can say, Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I not loved? Or have I hated? Yeah. That's God's choice. God's sovereign choice. And God keeps his word. You see, in keeping, in keeping his word in verses 10 and 11 with that future hope, he's able to keep his word to Abraham, to the patriarchs. In fact, theologically speaking, I was just meeting with a Jewish friend this week talking about Romans 9, 10, and 11, and all, all Israel will be saved. And I had to come to two, two presuppositions I had to hold. The first one was they will, all Israel will be saved, but only through Christ, John 14, 6. But second of all, all Israel will be saved if that is indeed the case, it's because God keeps his word to Abraham. God's love. We loved him, John says, because he first loved us. You are sitting here listening to this right now. You may feel hurt. You may feel abandoned. You may feel broken. You may feel humble. You may feel really, really messed up right now. You may be going through something really hard in this life. Just know God loves you. And that love means he has chosen you. He has called you. He teaches you. He leads you. He heals you. He delivers you. And he is not dependent upon your choices. So if you've messed up, if you're like me and you failed a lot of times and you've wondered what the heck's God's business doing with me anymore, why would God continue to love you? Why would God continue to care for you knowing what you have done, knowing the kind of person you have been? Aren't you encouraged to know that it has always been God's choice? And it has not once been yours. If that doesn't get you up in the morning, nothing will. God's love for you is so profoundly amazing. And he keeps his word. He continues to lead you. He continues to care for you. He continues to provide for you. He continues to teach you. continues to call you what's our response are we going to be like the israel in verses one to four or in verses 10 to 11 that's where we have to land our plane this has been big rev
from Isaiah chapter 11. God bless. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.